search goes on in San Francisco for the man known as the Zodiac Killer. In New York, the search continues for the 44 caliber killer. See if you can explain to me why I would want to be a Scientologist. Betches Media presents... Tell me we have a lead. Stone Cold, no. It was literally like the Hunger Games. Not another true crime podcast. What can I say? Tough titties. It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. Welcome back, everybody, to a very special episode of Not Another True Crime Podcast. I'm Sarah Levine, here as always with Casey Balsham. Hello. Danny Murphy. Hey, hey. And the reason today it's a very special episode is because we have a guest. Get excited. Our guest today is a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer. A few of his notable defense cases include the People v. Yusuf Salam, a.k.a. the Exonerated Five, also, the exoneration of Johnny. Wait, Mike. How do Can Capier. I'll just join it. Thank yeah. you very much, because I would have butchered that. <laughs> <laughs> also, former radio host on Air America and WABC in New York City. Everybody, welcome Ron Kuby to the show. Woo! Hi, everybody. Thanks so much. Hello. Can I already say we've had the best time before recording with him? He, like, <laughs> I'm never gonna. You're never gonna get off this Zoom. I just want to talk to you forever. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we start? Can you just tell the listeners how long you've been practicing law and what led you kind of down that path to becoming a defense attorney? Uh, I've been doing this now for 37 years, which I never imagined could possibly happen. I mean, it's not like, you know how it is? Maybe you don't. Like when you're young, you know, you may see snippets of yourself in the future. Oh, this is me as a mom or as a dad or as, you know, a, a unindicted war criminal. But you never really get a good sense of, of who you're going to be. So I never imagined I would end up doing this for this long. And I don't know what, what I, I mean, look, in, in fairness, I think people have very, very little insight into their own motivations for doing things. And I think most people don't have a, any firm sense of why they do the things they do. They just end up doing them. So rather than construct some sort of like false narrative about how, when I was, you know, thrown out, deported from Israel, and I was back on the streets in Ohio and was subject to police abuse and blah, blah, blah. And then I decided instead of shooting those cops, I would sue those cops. You know, instead of creating that narrative, which would sound good, but I have no idea if it's true or not. So I, I really can't answer that question as, as to why. After 37 years, I, I think it's what I do. That's, That's why I do it. That's a good answer. Yeah. So our, our podcast, we cover like a lot of true crime cases. And frankly, a lot of the ones that our listeners want to hear about are always like the, the young white women who get murdered, missing white women syndrome. Why do yeah. you think that true crime entertainment focuses so heavily on those types of crimes? Gee, gosh. <laughs> First, I, 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 I want to say, because we're in sort of a... a, a transformative moment in the United States around issues of race and policing. Um, and so I want to say to all of the, the white women out there, if you really care about black incarceration, could you please stay the fuck out of parks? 
<laughs> just stay the fuck out of parks. I know it's a sacrifice, and I know it's unfair, and I know that you're a good person, but just stay away. Be, I mean, there's you know, nowhere to pay, yeah. Uh, yeah, just, you know, find something else. Go to a yacht fucking club or something. <laughs> stay out of the parks. I mean, you know, the the... Central Park Five case, which I played a role in after they were convicted, I mean, is a very good example. Like, this terrible thing happened to uh, the Central Park jogger, and it was absolutely horrible. And they, so they arrested a bunch of innocent black men, black youth, railroaded yeah. them, and sort of destroyed their lives for, you know, a, a long period of time. So just stay in the parks. Um, I, I, I think that, that people care about attractive young white women getting killed because this society prioritizes attractive young white women. And and when the person who is alleged to have killed them is big and black and scary, um, that's sort of a twofer in terms of true crime, how this horrible, evil, awful, demented black man, you know, butchered this lovely, attractive white woman who had her her whole life ahead of her. She had a glowing future. When was the last time in a in a courtroom any of you ever watched um, like a young black man who was facing a, a sentencing and the lawyer said of him, he has a bright and promising future? Like never, because black youth don't get bright and promising futures uh, in this society. So the short answer is systemic racism. Yeah. Plus, you know, let's face it, the people who are watching true crime podcasts are people, you know, who come ro- relate to the victim, right? You want a relatable, just from a media perspective, you know, you want a relatable victim. Um, And if, you know, that's an attractive young white woman, she could have been anybody's daughter. You know, if it's a young black man killed by the police, he could not have been everyone's son. And sort of with that too, because you kind of uh, described how the scenario for a lot of these cases that seem to be like the alley-oop in a sense of, a white woman being victimized and murdered by a black man. Have you seen a lot of times when you're defending clients or anything that media, once the media storm starts with it, you're kind of like, what do I do now? Like when the media conversation around a case gets too big, you're like, is everyone clouded judgment? Like how does that affect you as a, like on the defense side? You know, it's a challenge. Uh, You know, Ideally, what you want is the media to be on the side of your client. Well, that never happens to me. I mean, they're (laughs) they're never going to be on my side, except in the actual innocence cases after I win them. Once I exonerate somebody uh, and he's been in prison for 28 years or 25 years or, you know, 18 years for a crime he didn't commit. And and after he's fully exonerated, then everybody's doing a big, attaboy, right, what a mensch, all this, this, this shit. But... But when they're actually charged with the crime for which they are ultimately exonerated, you know, two generations later, nobody's on my side. Uh, so what I try to do is, is move the needle toward neutrality. Um, at least offer enough of a counter narrative in public to the press that some people say, eh, you know, it's not a bad point. Like, why didn't he have any blood on him at all if this stabbing happened the way the prosecution said it did? Oh, 
How did it come to pass that he was just sort of selected as a suspect when he had no criminal record? That kind of stuff. I, I, I try to sketch out some absolutely provable facts, that is, facts that I know will come out at trial, as opposed to, you know, sort of a made-up narrative, and, and put those out so at least the press can anchor themselves around those facts if they want to give both sides of the story. Yeah, you mentioned this isn't um, fun. This is just like regular, <laughs> like, stuff. Yeah, regular like law talk. Yeah. Um, well, I, but I do, it, it, but it is, it's fascinating to us. And obviously as, as the world is changing and the movements and things like that, for us to kind of, especially as we do crime, we want to understand, I guess, what happens or like why, like why people, I mean, obviously, like you think like prosecutors are more interested in, in getting a conviction than being truthful. Right. I mean, that's kind of. No, I, I think prosecutors are interested in in getting a conviction and and almost all the time they're truthful within a very narrow set of confines. Like, right. did she do it or not? And and as to that question, in almost all cases and almost is is a significant asterisk because, you know, there's a lot of innocent people behind bars. But in almost every case, they did it. I know. I know this is a shocker for the true crime world where there's twists and turns and gosh. You know, oh, oh, look, it was the husband after all. I never would have guessed. But always. The, it's always the husband. Yeah, <laughs> that much we know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, first you, everybody thinks it's the husband. And right. then there's all this evidence that it's not the husband. <laughs> and then at the end, turned out to be the husband. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. if there's um, one thing but, we've learned uh, in this podcast is don't have a life insurance policy. <laughs> you don't want your husband to murder you. And also, don't, don't get, get married. One. Sorry, right. Casey. Don't get married. Don't get a life insurance policy. Don't do it. Right. And do check your spouse's Google searches because <laughs> you start to see yeah. things like death by arsenic poisoning. Question mm. mark. Mm -hmm then you, you know, you might want to rethink what you're drinking. That's not a Thanksgiving recipe. <laughs> yeah, that's not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but so since everybody almost always did it, th the question is, what did they do? Should it be illegal? How are white people who did it treated in comparison with black people who did it? Um, you know, was doing it justified? And, and more important in many ways is what's the best way to deal with this person who did it, whatever it happens to be. And, and look, I'm not, you know, a child. I recognize that there are some people who are simply too demented and dangerous to walk free among us. I know most of them in New York State. But that's a very, very small group of the people who did it and a very small group of people who are behind bars. So why don't we focus more on restorative justice? Why do we focus more on rehabilitation? Why is incarceration our first move rather than sort of the last one that we should use? I kind of feel with that too, unfortunately, because you've been <laughs> in this, you've been doing this for 40 years, but people are now more aware of some of these kind of underlying injustices. So when you talk about like in uh, misdemeanors and people being incarcerated for those, can you kind of walk through like how those are sort, I, cause I feel like now we're learning, those are set up to fuck people over for the rest of their lives to really make a difference from either 
getting hired, voting, and things like that? Well, I don't, you know, in terms of misdemeanor arrests. Yeah. Or just, in, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be nice if I could point to some overarching plan in all of this and say, this is where all the pieces fit together. Um, but they don't fit together that way. I mean, fundamentally, I mean, the system is based upon um, corralling and controlling people that the dominant society fears. And usually in America, the dominant society is white and the people they fear are people of color. So uh, a, a system is created where there are very much two tracks of justice. And you tend to see this very clearly in the, in the misdemeanor area. In New York, despite its alleged enlightenment, once you have a conviction for a misdemeanor, that never goes away. There's no expungement. There's no make it disappear. There's no erasure nung pro tunk or that's I took I learned that in in Latin for Jews in law school. <laughs> Which I got it. You know, for those of us you know who are Jews and didn't go to some parochial school, it's really important to toss out the Latin now and then. So we had a little. I Latin use it all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, it stays with you forever. So if you are white and wealthy or even middle class, white and well connected, you can usually bargain away uh, a disposition that doesn't leave you with a conviction. Um, some diversionary program or some preliminary plea that you complete this, you know, six months of anger management because well, there's a million, a million ways to avoid a criminal conviction. It, even for misdemeanors, if you have the resources to, to engage, if you don't have the resources, um, and you're left with a public defender, which is not to criticize public defenders. I love public defenders. My daughter is a public defender. That's how much I love them. But they are overworked and, and overburdened. And, and frequently, they cannot arrive at the best disposition for a single client, when as a private lawyer, you have one client. But I don't think it's part of any like grand plan it just, you know, sort of happened. I mean, look, these misdemeanor laws were passed before there were computers and the interweb and all that stuff where it was like legitimately hard to find somebody's criminal history and criminal record. Even the courts had problems finding it back when I started out. You know, the system obviously is very different now. You can Google anybody and find more information than, than had been available even to law enforcement. Um, back when I started doing this in, in 1983. Yikes. Yeah, that's another no. thing we've learned in this podcast is that if we were to ever murder somebody, we would have wanted to do it in the 70s. Totally. Because it's just <laughs> too hard. Even in the 90s, early 90s. You could even in the early through. 90s. That's when they would find a hair and be like, okay, and then nothing would happen. Right. <laughs> and just throw it away. There's no such thing as valid hair comparison. So, so forget about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I realized that one time when I was anchoring court TV, back when I had a media career before it all fell apart and I got fired and they sold. Anyway, I'm not good. <laughs> um, oh, you seem over it, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stuff happens. Uh, and I was anchoring court TV and I was watching this murder trial and I realized that every technology that was being used to nail this person, simply did not exist when I started practicing law. 
DNA, cell phone towers, cell phone tracking, Google search, Google. Um, you know, none of these things existed. Even if you had a blood stain, uh, then the best you could get was enzyme testing, you know, which would mean, okay, a third of the population has this blood enzyme, but nothing conclusive. Hair examination, fiber examination was in its infancy or didn't exist at all. Yeah, yeah, definitely kill in the 70s, you know, 80s, stop by 92. If I could turn back time by share, that's what that song's about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few bars. <laughs> Sarah, I know Sarah was, well, we obviously, just even like talking like this, there's, there's obviously holes in the justice system. I think for the most part, people probably think it's not very good and that there's definitely like some holes. But I know Sarah, you had the question about like a misconception about the justice system. Like, what do you think people Yeah, like well, I think because, you know, people, I feel like true crime is such a big genre now. It's entertainment, you know, Oxygen totally rebranded to be only a true crime network. And I think with that comes a lot of people who like to play like armchair lawyer, armchair detective. So I wanted to ask what you think. Hey, some... take those fucking people. <laughs> <laughs> One of them actually solved a, a, a murder case by finding a piece of evidence that no one ever saw, not the DA's what? office, Ow. not the defense, not successive defense teams, but just decided to play little armchair sleuth. And once she found it, she immediately publicized it. Hate those people, but go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to ask, what do you think is, uh, are some of like the biggest misconceptions people have about the justice system, whether, you know, at, at any point? You know, since I don't talk to regular people much, <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. I, I think people believe uh, that we have the best justice system on earth because of all of the constitutional rights that we theoretically afford people. Uh, I think that, and, and that, of course, is, yeah, we have a lot of constitutional rights. We afford the one half of 1% of people who actually go to trial. The other folks just end up uh, plea bargaining their cases. Uh, I think people think that the system, when it gets something wrong, that is when it convicts an innocent person, uh, it, at least it has an effective mechanism for correcting that error. And, and that's fundamentally wrong. I mean, it's gotten a little better in the past few years, but, but we have to fight for years and years and years before we win exonerations. And oftentimes we, we don't win them at all because the grounds for getting convictions overturned are, are so narrow. Um, so I, 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 I think people have no true understanding why a nation that they believe has the best criminal justice system in the world has the highest per capita rate of incarceration of any nation on earth. And I think the, the, the difference, the, the sort of stark disparity between those, you know, one is a belief and one is a fact, um, needs a, a lot of exploration because the best criminal justice system on earth should not have the highest per capita incarceration rate. I also like with with everything going on right now from like a legal standpoint in this justice system why is it you know obviously there's been a lot of police brutality and things and nothing essentially is happening to police who are kind of using excessive force and 
you know, dare I say it, murdering people. Why? Go ahead. Go ahead. They're they're killing them. Um, The DA of Hennepin (laughs) County at least agrees with you. Yeah. Yeah. Why why aren't we, why can't we touch them? Well, okay, you know, that's like a really good, fair question. Um, First off, this has been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, what, what has been missing, the crucial component that was missing was the advent of, of cell phones, this thing. Yes. <laughs> and it first became clear during the Occupy Wall Street arrests that, that the cops, as they were like beating people up and pepper spraying people and, and doing all this just wild ass shit, then lying about it that very yeah. day, just you know, we were attacked. No, you weren't. They didn't realize what these things were. These were actual recording devices that humans carried with them and who posted. And at some points it actually became comical. It became comical that the, you know, the deputy commissioner for public information would make a statement about what happened. Immediately five people would post a video showing it's a lie. He would then change his position. And then 10 people would post a video saying that's a lie too, demonstrating it. Uh, and nothing ever happened to those cops then. Uh, and nothing much, I mean, look, I will say this, there are more criminal prosecutions of cops pending right now than there have been in memory. But remember what the cops are there for, right. people at home. They are there to make sure that your shit and your lives are protected. You know, they act as the, the, the military arm of a structurally racist society. Yeah. And, and people don't want that until they do. Until they do. When they start to fear crime and fear so-called criminals and don't like seeing homeless people on the street because... They feel like menaced by them, like they're scary and ugly and they're all like got their bags and stuff. They can hurt me. Um, when, when the Karens and their male counterparts um, become the majority, then they want the police. And we've seen that in New York City. I mean, historically, uh, a very, quote unquote, liberal city. Uh, but we saw in the 90s that liberal city elected Rudy Giuliani. I mean, before he went completely crazy and and basically allowed him to turn the police loose on everybody, beating and killing and, you know, stopping without cause and face down in the street and all that stuff. And 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 feeding this mass machine of mass incarceration, you know, tens of thousands of people, you know, going to prison and everybody was fine with it. Everybody was fine with it. So that's why we don't want to do anything as a society about the cops, because the people who are in a position to do something want to make sure the cops come when you call them. Now, you might say, as would a normal employer, um, since when do my workers get to dictate the scope of the job? Right? And the answer is, you know, really never. I don't feel like broadcasting today. I think I'm going to go out and do a podcast instead of my show. Well, fuck you. You're not. 
I don't feel like being at the cashier's desk today. I want to go back in the meat storage unit because it's hot. No, no, you, you are a cashier. Um, I don't feel like making change, but you have to make change for people. You can't just round up and round down. I mean, <laughs> in everybody's life, that would be insane. I worked as a grill cook. I couldn't tell the boss, I don't feel like making cheeseburgers. I have empathy for the cows. I like the cows. Yeah, I'll cook chicken and potatoes, but not cows. I don't get to dictate the terms of my job. I mean, the cops do, and largely because they have a tremendous amount of political power. And while their union isn't a real union, um, you know, it's more like an organized crime syndicate. It's very powerful. That because a conversation that a lot of people are having for the first time now is the topic of defunding the police, abolishing the police, and these are now phrases being said. What are your overall thoughts on a, a world with a defunded police or an abolished police system? Well, you know, I, I never liked the phrase defund the police or abolish the police. I, I liked reimagine the police. Right? I hear better. John Lennon. I was going to ask. Right. Yoko better. Ono is rolling in as we speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what, let's, let's reimagine policing. Uh, it, it comes down to the same thing. And, and the reality is that the cops will be the first people to tell you we're not social workers. And they're right. They're violence workers. And that doesn't make it bad. I mean, per se, Violence is unfortunately necessary in many, many situations, and the state has a monopoly on violence in a democratic society. I think I learned, I think Jesus said that. Anyway, so, so I'm not attacking the cops for being violence workers, but, but since most of policing does not involve the necessity to make an arrest or investigating violent crime or arresting violent criminals. I, I think there have been yeah. some studies recently that say about 4% of a police officer's time is spent um, actually doing the serious work of policing, tracking down violent criminals, arresting them, processing, that kind of stuff. The rest of the time is spent basically functioning as social workers, mental health workers, emergency medical technician, violence interrupters, dealing with irate neighbors who are having fights with other neighbors, all that kind of stuff. There's no need for the cops to be doing that. They're not well-trained right. to do it. They're not the best people to do it. Um, we can have, but they, you know what they are? They are the people who always come when you call them. And that's why people call the cops because they will show up. Um, you can't really predict what they're gonna do after they get here, but they will come to the party, always. But there's no reason why we cannot create other organizations and institutions who will always show up. I mean, if you call for an ambulance, emergency medical services will always show up. You can have social workers who will always show up. You have to create an organization. You have to create funding. You have to provide the necessary infrastructure. And yeah, you do want a violence worker around just in case things turn south. But, but the cops, when I talk about defunding the police, I mean creating all of these alternative service-oriented, intervention-oriented structures that can function in society without somebody having to pull a gun or a taser or a baton or weaponize a bicycle or something like that. It's also serious. 
I'm thinking about how to weaponize the bicycle, and then I'm. Oh, like, really? Oh, you should watch um, <laughs> watch the latest arrest video from. Well, I guess we're recording this July 30th. It was two nights ago, July 28th, when mm -hmm. the NYPD uh, plain clothes mm -hmm. uh, warrant squad decided to oh. roll up to a demonstration on 22nd and in, in somewhere on the east side, yeah. 22nd Street. Oh yeah to snatch and grab this w woman who was wanted for a misdemeanor. And, you know, it was well executed in terms of, you know, they tracked her, they were clearly looking for her, they tracked her, they found her, they jumped out, they grabbed her, they dragged her, they threw her in the van and the van sped out of there. So, I mean, if that's what you're going to do, they did it well. It was I a mean, the kind of overarching question was, why are you doing this incredibly reckless, provocative thing? And that's what the mayor said, even Cuomo said yeah. it was obnoxious. And, and, and the like. But when people started to mass around the unmarked vehicle, uh, all the bicycle cops used their bicycles as weapons, basically picking them up and knocking people back with them. It was kind of impressive. I'd never seen people use bicycles that way. Can't say I have either. Well, I can't ride a bike, so I have nothing to comment on with that. I've just, I've never, I've never learned the skill. Well, then you can riding. They were riding. They were just okay. those clubs. You can do that, can't you? I don't have that upper arm strength. I'll work on it though. I'll try it. Start lifting. <laughs> Shoulder presses. It's in, with because obviously you've been. This is you, you even said you're not used to having conversations with people who this isn't their entire life, and because you've been doing this for like 37 years. What is your over? I mean, because obviously everyone is more is happy that people are trying like opening up their eyes right now but what do you feel about like you're like oh you just realized things were fucked up like are, no 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 i'm not i'm not i'm not one of those people i've never been one of those people i hate those people never want to be one of those people i never want to be the oh i found out about this a week ago boy you're really out of it because you didn't discover it today or you just discovered it today where <laughs> No, no, no. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we need all of you to make systemic change. I mean, yeah, so I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I, I'm trying to be as supportive as I can, which is really representing demonstrators, um, you know, and trying to tell people what's real, what isn't. Uh, but a lot of stuff, I mean, everybody got summonses. Like I have like hundreds of clients who got summonses and desk appearance tickets and they all have to show up in court in October. Now I put October in air quotes because October has stopped being a month. It's become a construct. <laughs> like, okay, October isn't now because nobody can show up in court now. And October isn't next year because next year is too late for us to do this. So let's, let's just call it October as if somehow in October, there's gonna be 500 people showing up in a courtroom to get rid of, you know, fucking summonses for disorderly conduct. Don't think so. But anyway, at least having a lawyer available to people and they know what's likely to happen, you know, it's encouraging to them. It, it, it emboldens them or reassures them that their, their lives will be fine. I think I'm gonna make a t-shirt that says October is the construct. <laughs> <laughs> because I have never heard anything more true in my life. Right. <laughs> right. You remember how Easter, we're going to have the churches open in Easter? Yeah. It's a construct. Does well, anyone I'm remember anything that never happened? Felt better. Yeah. I can't remember anything that happened in April. So oh, no. April is also just a total yeah, April loss. was kind of a lost month. I, I, I yeah. spent, you know, I discovered that when I don't have anything I have to do today, 
it's easy to just put it off and do it later and just lie in bed watching post-apocalyptic uh, pandemic films. Oh, the news? No, no, actually, <laughs> Hollywood productions, you know? Um, and there's a lot of them and they're pretty good, but I, I went through them all in April. That is a bummer. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit just about more inside the courtroom. Can you talk about the differences in building a defense for a defendant versus building a case for someone you're trying to exonerate? Yeah, I mean, building, I mean, trying to exonerate somebody is an extraordinarily mind-bogglingly difficult because the, the burden of proof is on, is on you. You have to come forward and convince a judge, usually by clear and convincing evidence, that your client didn't do this, um, which is way different from the prosecution having to prove someone's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So in exoneration cases, one of the reasons they, they take so long is you really have to put together a very, very compelling case that your guy or woman didn't do this, which means reinvestigating, talking to old witnesses, digging through old files, trying to get the DA to look in their file to see if there's documents that somehow just didn't make it to the defense desk, as there so often turns out there are. You know, that little piece of paper with the coffee ring around it that got stuck in a folder that said the witness <laughs> said she could not identify anybody and she <laughs> the detective. That, that document, oh crap, I guess we should have turned that over 20 years ago. Here it is. That kind of stuff. True story. Oh, did I do that? And they just hand in the paper. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and so that's a massive undertaking. It's resource intensive. And you have to you know, prove your guy didn't do it. With actual defense case, things are so much different because the prosecution has to, to prove every element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, let us assume our client is guilty because as I said, they almost always are. What, what you do in a defense case is you take the strongest parts of your case. And every case from a defense perspective has good facts and there's a larger folder called bad facts, okay? We put, we put the bad facts aside for a minute. What are the good facts here? Good fact is um, there was no blood on him. Good fact, the firearm was never found. Or good fact, the firearm was found, there was none of his DNA on it, et cetera, et cetera. There's always some good facts. So you sort of use those good facts as an, as an anchor for the or as a pole for the tent you are trying to put up, right? We'll call it the reasonable doubt tent. We want everybody inside, or at least one, <laughs> at least one. Um, and so, you know, here's one fat, you know, planted on the tent pole. Here's another, and, and, and the, the canvas on the tent or the, the fabric on top of all of these poles that makes a tent is stuff you make up, which may be true, it certainly is consistent with the facts that you have. 
and that's your, your counter narrative and you pursue your counter narrative with everything that you do. Your opening statement, your summation, the evidence you introduce, the cross-examination that you conduct. Um, even if you can make a witness look like a lying sack of shit, the question is, do I want to? Do I want to? You know, this witness is good for me, actually. So let her go, um, that kind of stuff. So that's how I, I think about, you know, doing defense versus exoneration. Hey, I interrupt. So, uh, so yeah. Wait, Kubi, this is Mike, the producer for uh, uh, the True Crime Podcast <laughs> listeners. So You're Christian kidding. Pacheco, he was in jail for 25 years uh, after being wrongfully convicted for cutting a man's throat in a New York bar. Uh, but another man confessed to that crime uh, 12 years ago. So almost half the sentence. Uh, and after the confession, he stayed in prison for 12 years. So yep. what is the flaw in the system that keeps somebody in prison for another 12 years after somebody else confesses to that same crime? Well, you know what? That's a really, really good question. I'm so glad you asked it, Mike. <laughs> Thank you, Kubi. I'm turning my mic back off. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm on. <laughs> And the answer, the answer is complicated. So, so top line answer is we have a justice system that prizes finality above everything else. That is to say we have, you know, long trials, we have an appeals process, we give people a lot of process that they are due, or as we call it, due process. But at some point, the courts have said, enough is enough. There has to be finality. The victims need closure, although I don't have any idea what that means. Uh, the, the prosecutors move on. Everybody moves on. This case is over. So when you prize finality as a, as a goal, you're going to be extremely reluctant 10 years or 15 or 20 years later to look at a case again especially if the defendant does what they usually do, which is to constantly file motion after motion. They're representing themselves. They can't find a lawyer. They're filing all these documents all the time. So now this person has filed 10 or 15 applications with the court saying, I'm innocent. They've all been denied. Appeals all been denied. It's easy to say, just stop. No more. We're done. And that's kind of the mentality. The, the other mentality, which is very much a prosecutorial mentality, is, is this, and, and I'll ask, I'll ask my, my, my hosts, you know, how would you feel if somebody confronted you with the fact, what they believe to be the fact, that you destroyed somebody's life, you, you deprived somebody of 20 years of their life and destroyed their family? How would we deal with it? Yeah, somebody came to you and told you that. I mean, I mean, it. I can't even like get over embarrassing cry. shit I said in the seventh grade. So I don't think I'd deal with it well. Yeah, I think I'd cry, I think, buy him drinks. Yeah, well, I would feel. I it would, yeah, I would feel so sad. No. I would drink a lot of wine, and but then there would also be a part of me be like, did I? You know what I mean? It would be very. Yeah, let's channel the inner. Did I? Because it's been my experience when I confront prosecutors with the fact that they have fucked up so royally. Um, they do not say, oh my God, Mr. 
ponytailed, scraggly guy. I am so sorry. How, how, just tell me how I can begin to make amends. They say, I didn't fuck up anybody's life. You're lying. He's lying. They're continuing to lie. You just want to make money off of this. I understand he's tired of being in prison, but he murdered somebody. So fuck you. I didn't do anything wrong. Yikes. And you know, that's, maybe you can see yourself in your own life when, when you actually, somebody confronted with you, you with something, and you don't know if you did it or not. But, but defensiveness, um, you know, is, is a real thing. And the more you have, the, the, the greater the accusation being leveled against you, the more monstrous the act that you committed, the more you're inclined to deny it if you possibly can. And so you force them to go to a hearing. Yeah, the other guy confessed. Everybody's always confessing to crimes that they are not charged with, right? You know, it's like my clients say, hey, I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. If I had done this, wouldn't I tell you? I say, no, you wouldn't, because you're not charged with this, that, and the other thing. You're charged with this fucking crime. Right? It's easy to confess to crimes that nobody wants you for. Yeah, sure, I killed them. I blew up the World Trade Center, whatever. I raped the Central Park jogger. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't do this. Nobody, you, you know, you're disinclined to believe those confessions and to challenge those admissions. And that's especially true. Um, and I don't know the particulars of this case, but I know the particulars of others. Let's say the defendant, the quote unquote bad guy, the, the murder convicted murderer happens to be in prison where you have put him. And, you know, 20 years later, the guy down the block gives him an affidavit saying, yo, you know, Raheem is in prison for a crime that I committed. I was the one that, you know, shot that cab driver. Like, they're both in the same prison, and suddenly this guy is confessing. Gee, I wonder maybe if uh, somebody's put some undue pressure on him to admit to a crime he didn't commit, especially since he's doing life without parole. And people are putting money in his commissary, and he has no family. Huh. So, so there's a legitimate suspicion of these things, and there's also an illegitimate suspicion. I mean, I had... I had <clears throat> two guys, my, my, my first exoneration case, which I, I got only because I was started doing the morning show on WABC, and at that time there was, people listened to the radio, and there was some synergy between uh, WABC television and radio, and so the great investigative reporter Sarah Wallace had this great expose on these two guys who were wrongfully convicted for a murder they did not commit. And uh, so we talked about it. We had her on the show and, you know, featured it as a tease. You know, tonight at six, you'll get the whole story. And eventually no lawyer would take their case. So they came to me and I took the case. Uh, and it quickly became apparent to me that the sole eyewitness against the defendants could not have seen what she said that she saw. It was physically impossible uh, for, to, for, her, for the crime to have occurred the way she said it occurred. Uh, which was kind of striking. And, and it seemed like the, the prosecution's office knew that. The DA's office knew it because they never called what's called the crime scene unit. Crime scene unit is always like, crime scene unit, they're on the scene, they take the measurements, the this, they're the ones that put the little cups on the bullets and do the chalk drawings and swab, for, you know, all that cool, you know, true crime shit. They never called anybody from the crime scene unit to testify, which is, I've never seen before. Um, and, and ultimately, it came out that a woman was saying that her boyfriend 
had written to her from prison saying that he committed the crime that somebody here is in for. And that was you know, one of our guys who was in prison with him. So the detective came to me with that. And I'm like, oh, fantastic. That's great. Give me the letter. She doesn't have it. Oh, gosh. Really? She doesn't have it? But she's willing to give an affidavit. I said, woo, I know lots of people willing to give an affidavit. Okay, all right, all right, fine. At least we have a named suspect here. And I went into court and I said, Judge, all I'm asking, all I'm asking is that the DA's office at least check the latent fingerprints in the gypsy cab that have never been run, never been tested against a current database. So remember, this is a gypsy cab. There's a million fingerprints. They're going to be in the back area. Uh, they, they determined that you know, neither of my clients' prints were back there, but they didn't check all the other prints because you know, most of them are going to be like regular customers, right? They don't have the resources to do that. So now that you've got a, a database, nice big interweb thing, um, at, at least run the prints. And the judge said, okay. And I get a call from the DA's office, um, and he said to me, you know, this only happens on television. <laughs> but we ran the prints, and the guy named in the affidavit, Arlette Cheston by name, his fingerprints were in the back of that cab. And so what they did was, you know, they grabbed Arlette Cheston, they sweated him down, and they were convinced that, yeah, he may have pulled the trigger, but my guys acted in concert with him. My guys were in on it, you know. They were unwilling to let go of my guy's guilt, even though somebody who had no relationship to them had provided a, the only piece of forensic evidence in the case. And finally, they strapped him down to a polygraph which is utterly inadmissible, but is convincing to law enforcement. And he admitted that he did it. He admitted he acted completely alone. He didn't even know who these guys were until he saw one of them upstate. And they exonerated my client. But, but that's, that's kind of the bar that you have. And there's also very much, um, you know, well, if for New York audience, we've all been to our bodegas, right? Yep, sure. Right. You know the little leave a penny, take a penny thing on the mm -hmm. counter? Right. Well, it's kind of like that in the criminal justice system. If you're going to take a penny out, an innocent man, we expect you to put a penny in the guy who actually did it. And that's kind of hard to do because we're private lawyers. We, we don't have massive investigative resources and the like. But, but I have succeeded in doing that a couple of times. Arlette Cheston was one. There was another murder in the Bronx where we had the actual killer uh, was another, and another one in Brooklyn where it was literally his cousin Vinny who committed the crime. Boy. Right, That's creating like, a lot of wonderful oh jokes. <laughs> good headlines, too. Good. Oh, so speaking of... So, no, I, somebody I, else has to talk. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I was still like, I was literally, now. I was still so like, I was like, I, I, I wanted, I wanted awesome more. Thing. Um but you mentioned... Um, you I have know, a longer version I can give you, but... It's, it's <laughs> that. Well, we have... Um, I, I have a fun question, especially since you like mentioned TV and, and kind of like, 
you know, like you said, this is the only thing that happens on TV. I know you've worked on a lot of like films and, and things like that. And I guess we kind of want to know which projects that you've been involved with that have gotten like the most right, like that looked the most authentic or if there's just a movie you saw and you're like, that would never fucking happen in a million years. That, that, that I've actually been a part of or that I've. Yeah. Like the, the, like the, like the films that you've, been a part of that looked the most authentic you know, or all, yeah or if you saw one that just looked all of the stuff that i've done has you know been in the the docudrama era as either you know somebody who was a full contractual participant like when i did the wrong man series season one and series season two by the way stars uh yeah check it out wrong man uh or or Film projects where I, I've been interviewed, um, Netflix came out with a very good series on the Atlanta child murders, a four or yeah. five part series, and I, I'm a much younger me is featured next to a much older me, which is all pretty terrifying. But <laughs> I God. play a significant role toward the end of the series. Don't want to give it away, but that was all real stuff. I mean, the stuff that I've done that isn't real is, is uh, you know, a Law & Order SUV, SVU. SVU, yeah. SVU, Law & Order SVU, and Blue Bloods. Oh my God, you know, okay. where the watchword is when I, I do script review or I'm participating or I'm trying to set up something, you know, the phrase is, this isn't a documentary. Um, so none of that is real. Um, fun. But it's not hard really. to break everyone's heart. What's yeah. like a tactic or a plot point that you see in like Law and Order SVU type shows that just never fucking happens? Well, nothing that ever happens there <laughs> actually ever fucking happens. You know, my client never submits to interrogation by the district attorney with me present unless I've already gotten a nod and a wink that, that this is happening. Um, nothing ever happens there that is remotely resonant in the real world. But look, it's an hour-long television show. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I do think that the, the harm that's kind of been done by these shows, which, which bothers me, but not enough to return my, my royalty check. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I got another one today, by the way. I wanna... Oh! <laughs> Drinks on Mariska Hargitay, yeah. <laughs> Here it is. You see it? All right. Nine big American dollars. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and you can realize that people who like appear in more than one uh, episode probably get big checks. Ooh. Like actor people. Yeah. Residuals. Yeah. No, I'm just learning this. Coscarelli, I tell you, it took me a while to learn radio too. Um, I, I think the harm that these shows do is, particularly Blue Bloods, is they do normalize police misconduct. Like everybody knows in Blue Bloods, there's going to be three plot points. And at least in one of the plot points, Danny, you know, is going to arrest two wrong people before he gets the right one. Right? It's always going to happen. And so he grabs him, tackles him, roughs him up, threatens him, intimidates him, wrong guy, goes to another one, does the same thing. Then finally, by the end of the show, he gets the right guy. And it's like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. 
But you watch it enough, you see, yeah, of course, this is how the police do investigations. Of course, you can be wanted for questioning. And of course, they can take you downtown in the back of a police car without arresting you. I saw that on television. And it's that kind of stuff that, that I think, you know, is, is bad for society. But there are so many things that are so much worse than cop shows. I have to, I have to, to curate my outrage. <laughs> I think that's fair. I'm old. To I don't know. I don't know how much outrage I have left, young people. There's only so much screaming into a void you can do until you just lose your throat. And there's, yeah, it's hard. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like I used to tell, tell my daughter, um, everybody is born with a finite number of drinks that they're going to be able to have. Wow. And nobody knows how many those I are. I was like, I, I think I never ever waste one on crappy booze. <laughs> and on that note, I was the cool we're dad. Wrap it up. Yep, it's a wrap. Wait, before one last little final question, if you could just give our listeners any advice, like for younger people who want to get involved with the social movement to reform the justice system. If you want to just, you know, tie a little bow on by ripping off the bow. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can be out in the streets and that's great. Um, you can do civil disobedience and that's great. You can vote for the candidates who are running for public office who are actually going to make radical change, at least radical within the, the, the perspective that we now have. I mean, none of them are going to overthrow capitalism, probably unlikely. Um, <laughs> but, but you actually want to be somebody who's sort of specifically making that change, then you got to train yourself. I mean, you got to go to law school or you've got to learn what legislation is. You have to learn the actual mechanics of this system if, if you're going to throw wrenches into it. You have to know where the gears are that you want to jam up. You know, and that just takes a lot of time and patience and, and stuff that most young people don't have and shouldn't have. You shouldn't have patience for this shit. You should be out in the street. Um, right you know, agitating and raising hell and recognizing that for all of our patient incremental change over the past 20, 30, 40, pick a number of years, this is what we have now. So we haven't done a great job. All right, comrades. Hey, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming thank by and talking so to us. Well, pleasure to be in your, in your Zoom room here. I, I <laughs> Betches.